Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast, where here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. I'm your host, Wes McAdams. We have been doing this series the last few weeks, talking about hope for the future of the church. And I think this series is incredibly relevant and important right now because it's a time where we are feeling so very uncertain about the future. We look around and there's so many things that are broken, so many things that aren't the way that they should be. And as we look at the future, especially of the church, we wonder what's the future going to look like. And so I've had the pleasure and the joy of inviting some of the people in my life, some of the preachers and ministers that I know, to come on the podcast and share with us some of the reasons why we should be hopeful as we look at our current situation and as we look at the future because of what we have in Jesus. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about political polarization. It's no secret that our culture and even the church is so very divided over politics. Everything, it seems, is filtered through the lens of red and blue, left and right, donkey and elephant, Republican and Democrat, and we are so divided from one another. We demonize one another. We vilify one another, and we have to figure out how we're going to deal with our current situation and how we're going to be Christians in the midst of a divided culture. And so today I am joined by my guest, my friend, Brandon Britton, who is the preacher for the Pleasant Valley Church of Christ in Killen, Alabama. And I am so excited to have him on the podcast. Brandon, welcome, brother. Thank you, Wes. I've, uh, I love the podcast. My wife and I have, have listened. We know, I know at least three years that we've been listening and uh, really excited to get to uh, try to contribute in some way. Well, I apologize that it's taken me so long to have you on as a guest because you are one of the people in my life that brings me so much hope and encouragement, and I so appreciate uh, your work in the kingdom, and I'm excited for our audience to get to hear some of your perspective on these matters because I think you've you've navigated this time very wisely. Um, social media is one of those areas. It's where I got to know you, uh, but it's also one of the areas in our culture that contributes to and where we can see so much of the divide. So if you would just kind of give us your perspective on our current situation. I've been asking the guests to share the good, the bad, the ugly. Where are we right now in the culture and especially in the church from your perspective? You know, it's funny. You know, everybody knows there's the old the old uh, saying that you never discuss politics or religion. So uh, we're going to break both of those taboos just by having this conversation. Right. Uh, but truth is, I don't I don't know how we can avoid it. Um, a few years back, when the elders and deacons met with me about coming to work with this church, one of the questions I was asked in that in that conversation was, um, "Do you preach politics?" And my response was um, that. It's, it's inevitable because uh, the gospel is political by, by nature. Uh, it's just not partisan. And, and I think that's a, a really important thing to remember. Whenever, whenever you're talking about the gospel, uh, I think N.T. Wright, Scott McKnight, some guys like that have always said that uh, to say Jesus is Lord is, was to say that Caesar is not. Or, you know, it, just the kingdom of God has always been uh, 
crashing up against the kingdoms of men. You know, you could just say, you know, Pharaoh is not Lord. You know, any king, is, Herod is not Lord, or, or any president or prime minister or, or you know, whatever, uh, you know, the terminology is. Um, so you, the gospel is political by nature, but it's important to remember that it's not partisan. And um, I think probably the, fir- the first thing that really is necessary in having this conversation is to frame what we mean even when we use the word politics. Um, and I can't say it any better. I re- read a quote from Brian Zond one time, and, and he said it about as well as I've ever heard it said. Uh, politics is an attempt to answer the question, how do we live together? We have to share space and resources, so how do we do that? And at its best, politics is, is a good faith attempt to achieve the common good. Uh, we're, we're trying to move toward equality and goodness for as many people as possible. But at its worst, politics is a means of domination. It's about you know, enforcing inequality to benefit a few at the expense of many. And, and with that being said, uh, the good, as far as our current climate, there is no good in polarization. There's no good in that. But it is good that people care passionately about serious issues. Um, the realm of politics, you know, oftentimes it's poverty, security, health care, justice. And it's, it's good that people are passionate about those because failures in those areas, it leads to real world human suffering. And I'm glad people care. Uh, apathy can be a, a much more difficult problem to solve than misguided zeal or, or, or bad policy. We can steer those in a better direction. But if you just don't care about the state of human suffering and the state of the world, it's really hard to, to motivate somebody to, to care. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm just not a political person. Um, and as we've defined politics as, as us trying to work together to solve problems, it, it would trouble me if you're not a political person. But if by that you mean, look, I'm not, a, I'm not partisan minded. Well, hey, great. I'm not either. I, I, I can get behind that and, and we, can, we can begin to work. Uh, so that would be the good, I would say. Uh, now the bad, um, the bad is when our differing ideas for how to solve these problems become our identity. Um, rather than saying something like, um, and I know we don't normally talk like this, but, but hopefully this would kind of be philosophically where we're coming from. You know, somebody might say, well, I, I sympathize with Republican philosophies or, or I identify or, or I relate to Democrat policies. Instead of that, what you see is people become, I am a Republican. I am a Democrat. And, and when it becomes our identity, then we feel compelled to go along with that group in, in everything. Um, and that means that even in areas where they need to be critiqued or rebuked or opposed, we kind of say, well, this is what I am. I have to kind of, you know, maybe pinch my nose and go along with this. And that tends to lead to the ugliness that we're seeing today. And the ugly would be the sectarian climate of politics where you're either with us or you're with them, and they are the enemy, and they are evil, and they must be stopped. And, and, you know, lately the rhetoric that I'm hearing is 
they must be destroyed. We're going to bury them. And, and that, that's a disturbing escalation. Um, when we reach the point that politics becomes a, a zero-sum game in which in order for me to win, you have to lose, um, I, again, I, I like a quote from Brian Zahn. He said, what shall it profit a movement if it gain a whole world of political power and lose its soul? Uh, and, and that's what I think partisan politics is, 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 is pushing us to, where it's not just about uh, winning, it's about destroying the other guy. And I think what we've seen in our politics is a willingness to do and say whatever's necessary to win. And then once we win, we have to work to destroy the other guy so that, that he can never win again. And, and that's, that's ugly. Um, it, it's ugly. It's ugliest, though, when that spirit manifests itself in the church because a divisive partisan spirit is in direct opposition to the mission of Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite places to read, to, to kind of recenter myself when I get stirred up a little bit is John 17. And remember, Jesus was, his prayer was that people would be united in him with the Father. And I try to always remind myself of that, that phrase that he uses, that the world may know that you sent me. It's, it's the absence of partisanship in the body of Christ that is the church's greatest witness to the world, that, that, that we're different. Out there, everybody's an enemy that's not, you know, you're either for me or you're against me. And, and, but we're different than that. And, and, and so the ideal would be John 17, but then the unraveling of that would be 1 Corinthians 1, where the political question, I know we don't think of it as political, but it actually is, because the, the question that is being debated in Corinth is, Who's going to lead us? Who, who do we trust? Who do we follow? And the question is not a bad question, but the partisan nature of the answer is. Uh, it, it's fine to think that, you know, Apollos is the best leader. But when it became their identity, and, and Paul says, you know, this is what I'm hearing. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. That again is that not I identify with or think this is best, but this is who I am. It's my identity. And Paul strongly rebuked that partisanship. I think that should be a really powerful lesson for us whenever we, we dabble in the, the realm of, of politics. Wow, Brandon, you've touched on so many amazing things already, so many important things. I love that you started out with the good in talking about the fact that that there are very few apathetic people, which is, as you said, is a good thing. It's good that people care. I, I hope what motivates people isn't just, and I think most of the time this is true, that it's not just what can I get out of this policy, but what can my neighbors get? How how can we make sure that that, as you said, there's equality, that everybody has the same opportunities to to have life and health and 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 everything that they they need to survive and to thrive in our country, in our world. And so politics it relates to all of that. I love the way that you said that politics is about how do we live together? I, I did a, a series not too long ago here at McDermott Road, and I had a guest on, and 
he defined politics as who gets what, when, and how. And, and I think what sometimes we don't recognize is that those questions about how do we live together? How do we live together when we have different needs? How do we live together when we have uh, different abilities? When one person is more capable of starting a business or running a business or another person is disabled or another person, we have all of this disparity in what we have and what we bring to the table. And and so how do we create policies that give everybody the same sorts of opportunities? Those are complicated questions. And like you said, we might lean one way or the other and we say, well, I, I think the Republicans have some better policies that help us achieve these good goals. Or over here, I kind of think the Democrats have some good policies that help us to achieve these goals. And I love that you said that we've got to guard against identifying with and and having that that policy or that party or that person. Sometimes we attach ourselves to a person and and we become so partisan. I never thought about tying 1 Corinthians 1 into that but you're you're so right. This becomes incredibly problematic when we want to destroy one another as Christians. Even if we disagree with someone, even if someone literally is our enemy, Jesus tells us to love to love our enemies. So even if somebody literally was our enemy and is trying to destroy us, we're called to love them. So yeah, I, I totally agree. There's there is some good in the passion that we bring to the table, but I think sometimes we. We oversimplify the the issues and we over-identify uh, with these politicians or parties or groups. So you've already touched on some of the biblical passages and ideas, but what 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 Bible, what scripture, what biblical passages and ideas really shape your thinking as it pertains to politics and how you personally navigate the, these muddy, di- diversive waters? So the answer to your question is, is, is hands down, it's the Sermon on the Mount. That, that for me, mm. um, to use the language of our discussion, it's the political platform of Jesus. The, the Sermon on the Mount is what the politics of heaven looks like. Um, I love what Shane Claiborne says about it. Uh, it's not a question of if we're political, but how are we political? And for me, um, it's the Sermon on the Mount. That, that's how I want to be political when it comes to you know, the, the problems that exist and how we're going to address those and how we're going to meet needs and all that. The Sermon on the Mount is going to be the template that I'm filtering my thinking through to help me understand what would be God's will for solving this problem. Because if, if, if we're not careful, and this is, this is the great weakness uh, of us when it comes to solving problems is we're short-sighted. We, we solve the problem that is immediately in front of us and don't realize that two steps down the road, we might be creating an even bigger problem or, or three problems. So we solve one and created three. Um, and I think the Sermon on the Mount protects us from creating more problems as we try to solve problems. Um, that, that, of course, that, those, those three great chapters in Matthew, they show us that the gospel is, is very much political, like I said, but it's not partisan. Um, whether you identify as a liberal or a conservative or a libertarian, you're going to get your toes stepped on in that text. 
Um, you know, there, there are positions that, that if um, pundits were talking about it today, they would label liberal when there are positions that they would label conservative. Um, so, you know, again, it, it's, it's trying to avoid identifying with, with just certain things. But, you know, the paradox of Jesus is that he appeals to everyone and yet he's also offensive to everyone. Um, his followers included lepers, tax collectors, blue-collar workers, white-collar professionals, the educated, the uneducated, Pharisees, zealots, uh, what we would kind of think of as the economic one percenters, you know, like the most wealthy people who, who literally have no financial concerns at all. Um, and, but, and yet Jesus had disciples from amongst all of those groups. And yet all of the people he addressed, there was something that they needed to change in their worldview. There was something they needed to change in their, in their treatment of other people. And so what I try to do, and, you know, I'm probably like everybody else on my best days, I do a decent job on most days. I'm inadequate. And on some days I just do a terrible job. But what I, what I try to do is use the Sermon on the, Remount, Sermon on the Mount to remind me that my politics should be humble, meek, merciful, pure in heart. I should seek to be a peacemaker. Um, I should strive to be a light where there's darkness. Um, you know, I, I should work at making sure that I don't murder people with my words uh, because Jesus in the sermon talks about, you know, it's, it's not enough to say, don't kill your brother. Uh, he says, but look, don't, don't foster the, the language that creates the attitude that manifests itself in violence. So don't murder people with your words. Um, seek to reconcile. Where relationships are fractured and broken, go back and try to reconcile them and do it quickly. Don't let it fester. Don't let it, don't put it off because that only allows more time for a divide to grow between you and whoever you're in conflict with. Um, we, we, you know, we sometimes think about like the part where he talks about not to commit adultery and not to, to even look upon a woman to lust after you in her heart. And I think the way that we would say that today in kind of to use modern language is he's telling us don't view other people as a commodity to be exploited for your benefit or pleasure, whatever that might be. Um, realize that other people are made in the image of God. They're not just commodities. They're not votes just to, to get. They're not money just to siphon. They're not you know people to just control so you can have power. Uh, so don't don't view other people as as just as an object. Um, keep your word. Don't don't retaliate. Respond with kindness and generosity and grace. And you mentioned a moment ago, um, you know, even if you view the other party, the other person, whatever, even if you did view them as the enemy, like you said, the politics of heaven says you don't seek to destroy them. You love them. You do good to them. You bless them. Uh, I've never been able to track down where the quote comes from. I've seen it attributed to Mark Twain and Abraham Lincoln, but but the idea of the quote is, is the best way to destroy your enemy is to make your enemy your friend. That's, that's the politics of heaven. That's the, the, the platform of Jesus. And, uh, and when you get to the end of, of that text, he's going to say, look, be more critical of yourself than you are of other people. 
and be careful who you listen to. Um, he gives us the, the, the part about the, the, the tree that is known by its fruit. So he cautions us, don't trust those whose actions don't match their words and those whose words produce poisonous fruit. So in terms of my personal political expressions, that's what I'm trying to filter my thinking through is how does it look in light of the Sermon on the Mount? How would it change my approach to this subject or the way I feel about this topic if I filter it through the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, that, that is so good, Brandon. And I, I want to make sure that, because I can almost hear people misunderstanding what's being said here. I, I think that so often people think, oh yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, absolutely. That's why we need to make sure that this country, that the United States is a Christian nation and follows the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to say, time out. You know, there's, this is this is what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is what God's kingdom looks like when God's people are living this out. And so, again, to your definition of politics that I love so much, that that it's how do we live together? So if I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, then this is how I'm going to live together in America or in any other country where I find myself, this is how I'm going to live this out. There is no way that a kingdom of this earth could ever fully align with the agenda and the platform of Jesus. The, the Sermon on the Mount cannot be lived out by an earthly kingdom. I mean, let's see any country have as its foreign policy, turn the other cheek. <laughs> they they can't do that. They can't have as their foreign policy. We're just going to turn the other cheek anytime we're slapped as a nation. But I can do that. And Brandon can do that. And every other Christian, regardless of where they're living and regardless of the policies and the political parties of their nation, they can turn the other cheek. We can turn the other cheek. We can we can live out or strive to live out the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm never going to find a party or a country, for that matter, that's going to fully align with the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why I think the word for me that's so important is citizenship and knowing that my citizenship, yeah, in a legal sense, is in the United States, but predominantly my citizenship is to the kingdom of heaven. And that's true wherever the boundary lines are drawn or wherever I find myself living. Well, so let me interject one other thought uh, along those lines. And I, and I agree with you. Um, I don't know that a, a, a country could uh, follow the, the Sermon on the Mount um, without there being some serious repercussions. You know, that being said, I think that secular governments could learn a lot from the politics of Jesus about no de-escalation of conflict between countries. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in my experience traveling out of the, I think I've been to 17 countries and in my experience, it's, it's not the, the citizens of those countries that have a problem with me or the citizens of the United States and vice versa. It's our governments that often are at odds with one another. Not most everywhere I've ever been. The experience I've had is people want to they want to go to work, they want to provide for their family, they want to spend time with their friends and their family, and eat well and be happy and love one and and do things that that, that are fulfilling to them. That's pretty much what everybody wants. 
Um, and it's sometimes our governments that are in conflict with one another. And, and I would add this. I think our governments globally all could do a much better job of going, what if we took an approach toward our, quote, enemy countries of winning them over by doing things that that historically countries don't do for one another? Uh, and I know some of that does go on. I'm not, I'm not naive. I, I know that we do give foreign aid in a lot of places. But um I think one thing that that that, that, the, that the world could definitely learn from the kingdom of God, which the kingdoms of men will never be the kingdom of God. That, that's that's we know that, but that there are a lot of things that they could learn about how to better govern their realm if they would look to Jesus and His politics of turning enemies into 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 friends. Yeah. And isn't it, I mean, I, I hate to use the word seditious because that, that has a, such a negative connotation, but I mean, it is a form of sedition that God's kingdom has these little spies, uh, these these people working behind the scenes in every earthly kingdom, in every earthly place, being salt and light, changing things, not from the outside, but from the inside, and and. And like you said, seeking, how can I use my, how can I leverage my position? How can I leverage my power? How can I leverage my privilege in order to help my neighbor, in order to make friends of my enemies? And wouldn't that be amazing if Christians, I, I think about people that lived in exile in scripture, like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of these leaders, these exiles had positions of leadership. And they found ways to leverage their positions, leverage where they found themselves for the good, not only of their, their brothers and sisters, but for the good of the entire Babylonian uh, empire. And, and wouldn't that be amazing if Christian people were so shaped by the teachings of Jesus that they allowed those teachings to not only shape how they interacted and how they voted, but also shape how they 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 lead or how they interact uh, in their in their positions, whatever those positions might be. And, that, and that's that's why it's so important. It's essential that that the church not be not be plagued by partisanship, that, you know, the, the identity politics and things like that. It, it, because if, if, if the church doesn't show that 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 avenue is a possibility where is it going to be seen where where else is it going to be seen and so um if we allow ourselves to kind of get caught up in the current and pulled into all of that then our ability to to bear witness against the the evils of those things mm. it diminishes so you know it's it, it goes back again sermon on the mount it's being that light that city that's set up on a hill that's calling people to something higher and better yeah. Amen. I, I don't know if you've ever heard this quote, and I, I'm, in fact, I'm not even sure if I've ever used it in, in a podcast, although I've thought about inserting it several times, but there's this quote from the Epistle to Diognetus that I just love. I mean, it just, there's I could read the whole passage, but I won't. But it says, and I think it applies to what we're talking about, it says, talking about Christians, it says, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. I love that line right there. But then he says, as citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. 
Every foreign land is to them as their own native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. And I, I just, I love that, that, that passage, but I love that idea that, um, you know, we could go and make our home in any country. This is where we are. And there's sort of a paradox there that, yes, I'm, I'm a native here. And so I have a special kin, kinship to the people here and a special passion uh, for the people here and the good of my community and my country. But at the same time, like you said, I, I also have to bear witness about the things that are broken. And I have to sort of consider myself a foreigner and a sojourner here, an exile here. And so there's sort of a paradox where I belong here, but yet I, I really don't. And, and I'm both a foreigner and a native at the same time. Right. Uh, Frank Viola has a book called Insurgents. You, you made reference a moment ago that, you know, the, the language seditious sounds sinister. Uh, but in his book Insurgents, he actually uses that kind of as the metaphor for the book is that uh, believers are in, in a sense sleeper cells inside the empires of men and that uh, we work from the inside to transform those kingdoms, to make them different, to make them uh, better versions of themselves. Again, they'll never be the kingdom of God, but they can be better versions of themselves. Um, and, you know, I think, I think the Bible always portrays the, the, the empires of men as uh, symbolized as, as a beast in scripture, whether you're talking about Daniel or Revelation. However, those beasts can be uh, defanged and declawed a bit and to where uh, the, the, you maximize the good that they're doing and minimize the harm that gets done. And uh, again, it, it goes back to, I think, I think a lot of what he did in that book, he actually gets from C.S. Lewis. I know that he uses some of that same language of, of um, this is kind of like, a, you know, we've broken into enemy territory and we're conquering it in the name of Christ. And yet it's a, it's a nonviolent overthrow. We're not killing people to take control. We're, we're having people to use the language of Revelation 19. They're slain by the sword of his mouth, which, you know, of course, is, is the word of God. And um, the enemies of Christ become the servants of Christ. And as such, then they live by the politics of heaven rather than the politics of the kingdom of men. And, and everyone benefits from that. You know, the citizens and the enemies, everybody benefits from that. Yeah, I, and I I love I love how you you started this by talking about the language that people use has become so polarized that they're using language not of disagreement but of destroying one another, and how the Bible, the New Testament specifically, uses militarized language, but it's in as you said this this upside down sort of way where it's a nonviolent military, which is in itself a, a paradox that our weapons, as Paul says, our weapons are not carnal weapons. We're not doing warfare the way. And so I think sometimes when Christians think that they're standing up for what's right and they're defending our country and making our country a better place, and they even use militarized language, I don't think they're speaking the same way Paul is speaking in that we are, as you said, destroying our enemies by making them our friends, by loving them. Paul says in Romans 12 that we overcome 
evil, not with evil, but we overcome evil with good. And I think so often when we're talking about politics, we try to fight fire with fire. And I think especially, I'm just going to be real transparent and honest, that I think over the last few years, we've had this idea that, well, you know what, it hasn't worked to turn the other cheek. It hasn't worked to be the nice guy. You, you just get pushed over being the nice guy and it hasn't worked being kind and loving. So now it's time to fight back and give to them what they've given to us. And that is antithetical to the Sermon on the Mount. And we are called to, to overcome evil. Yes. To fight. Yes. But fight with love, fight with kindness, fight with gentleness. And through these things, we are changing things, even if it means that we give our lives. That's the example we have in Jesus, that we're willing to, we're willing to die. We're just not willing to kill uh, for, for the good of our, our neighbors. Yeah, you know, the book of Revelation has really influenced me, my, my, my understanding about how, how Christ defeats his enemies. Uh, in the book of Revelation, you know, John, John hears a lion roaring and then he turns around and he sees a lamb. You know, it, 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 it kind of, you know, we think of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is, but that lion manifests himself as, as a slain lamb in the book of Revelation. And especially when you get over into Revelation 19, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks love Revelation 19 because it, there's a way you can read it that feeds into our our worldly partisan tendencies of of war and defeat and destroy and kill the enemy and all that. And you know, Revelation 19 is the battle of the Lamb. But if you'll read that text carefully, when Jesus shows up, when the King of Kings shows up, he's already covered in blood. The, the battle hasn't begun. So it's not the blood of his enemies. It's his. He shows up and is covered in his own blood. Which, of course, for any Christian, you know, this is a, this is an allusion to to the, the crucified Lamb. You know, the Lamb that was slain uh, for the sins of the world. And so this 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 Lamb that is covered in blood, that is roaring like a lion, he shows up to battle and he's covered in his own blood, and he slays his enemies by the sword of his mouth. He's not literally killing people. You know, it's the sword of the spirit, which, you know, Paul uses that language in Ephesians 6 in a militaristic way. But he says the sword of the spirit is the word of God. It's it's not, you know, this physical way of killing or stopping your enemy. It's a way of piercing them to use the Hebrews four language of piercing their heart, you know, cutting through all the prejudice and, and callousness and pricking the heart to transform to transform the enemy, and as you get down to the you know further into Revelation 19, I, I actually uh, I, I had a conversation with some friends just this week. We were talking about this. Um, it says that he um, that he will rule them with a rod of iron, talking about his enemies, and um, that's the King James reading at least. Uh, but the word for rule there is is the word for shepherd shepherding, um, and so. That that change that, that changes the way you read that, because the idea of rule you, you can, especially with a rod of iron, you can almost picture you know you know I'm bashing them down with this rod of iron. But when you understand that he's actually says he he will shepherd his enemies, he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. 
I immediately think of the 23rd Psalm and the Lord is my shepherd, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so this rod of iron, you know, I see it as this unbreakable shepherd's crook, you know, his, his kingdom won't be destroyed. This king is not going to be overthrown and he's not going to use this rod to bash his enemies. He's actually going to shepherd them. And that rod is a source of comfort. Um, and, and so again, it's not that the Bible doesn't use language that you know we might put in the realm of inflammatory or militaristic, but we've got to be careful that we don't read them through our modern lens, but we read them through the biblical lens of, of how they're being used in their context. And that gives a completely different approach to Jesus's view towards his enemies, which by the way, all the all all you read in Revelation 19 is mirroring what Jesus did in his in his life on the cross, covered in his own blood. He's saying, "Father, forgive them; they don't know what they're doing." So th- that's that's where I want us to be saturated, to let our our politics be be, be baptized, if you will, in that kind of language and that kind of mentality. Yeah, well, and and I always have to remind myself that that the enemy that Jesus defeated that is most dear to my heart is me. (laughs) I'm the enemy that he made into his friend by his own death. Instead of killing me, he was killed for me. And and it's that, I I love the word cruciform. Um, And as you were talking, it, it, it helped me realize that what we really need is to participate to whatever degree and whatever way we do participate in politics, we need to have a cruciform cruciform political ideology where we are participating in a way that is shaped by the cross of Jesus, uh, that is shaped by all of these things that you've laid out, that this is the way we treat our enemies, this is the way we treat our neighbors, this is the way we treat our friends. And so, Brendan, as we we sort of wrap this up, just to kind of put a bow on it and, and think about what might the future look like? We, we, of course, we don't know. I don't know what's going to happen right now in Russia and Ukraine. I don't know what's going to happen uh, with the White House or the Congress or the Supreme Court. I don't know what's going to happen in Texas or Alabama or anywhere else. Um, but I, I, I know that there is hope for the future of the church if we will embrace these biblical truths. So in your mind, uh, what's the hopeful vision for the church over the next few years if we would really adopt and embrace these biblical truths? What what might the future look like for the church? Eugene Peterson's got this great quote where he says, we overestimate the politics of Rome and underestimate the politics of grace. Um, mm-hmm. you, you touched on this a moment ago. I think one of the greatest challenges we're going to face as believers is believing that what Jesus said is is literally actually true. Now I know that there's there's a level of which we we automatically ascribe to, to the words of Jesus truth and we should he, he, you know he makes that clear in the book of John. But there's 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 what I would call um you know the intellectual truth and then the heart truth, you know the the, the thing that you believe on paper, but you don't really believe in your heart. Um, Jesus says things like it's more blessed to give than to receive, that greatness comes from being a great servant. To love your enemy is to be like God. And, and I wonder if in the back of our minds, 
we're thinking, well, that sounds good on paper, but it won't work in the real world. That's, that's just not how things work in the world. And so I think our great challenge as far as you know, the future in the church of embracing these scriptures is, is to first recognize these aren't just platitudes or sentence sermons you know, that, that, that are great quotes. They're, they're the literal politics of heaven, and they work. Um, we have evidence that they work. They're not just untested theories. They work uh, because Jesus lived in a world that was as politically charged and, and polarized as ours is, if, if not more even. Mm-hmm. And yet Jesus in that world was the great unifier. He, he was the great uniter. Um, you take, for example, Simon the Zealot. And for those that maybe aren't familiar, familiar with what exactly it meant that he was a zealot, um, the zealots, if they were around today, would probably be labeled a terrorist organization because their belief was policy is not working. We got to take matters into our own hands. It, violence is sometimes necessary. You know, kind of the that you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs kind of thing. And that was their approach. And then at the same time, you have Matthew, the publican, tax collector. So a, a man that culturally is viewed as betraying his country. He's a, he's a Benedict Arnold to make money for the Romans and to make money off, the, off of his own people. And so for roughly three years, you have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the publican literally as far removed from one another on the political spectrum as you could be. They ate together, they lived together, they prayed together, they studied together, they worshiped together, they worked together. You know, you might say that that's Jesus's most overlooked miracle is that he was able to bring these two people together and, and, and make it work. And, and, and so making this our future starts with the church showing the world how to disagree well. That's how Shane Claiborne likes to say it. We've got to show them how to disagree well. We're always going to disagree. I know you a couple of weeks ago on your podcast, you know, that was one of the topics that you discussed. It's like, what do we do when we disagree on what we think the Bible says about this or that? So we have to be able to show the world how to disagree well, because when we look at the same problem, different people are going to come to different conclusions. For, For example, Depending on where you fall on the the socioeconomic ladder, any issues related to to poverty and government assistance, you're going to view those things differently based upon where where you are economically. It doesn't necessarily mean one person is right and one person is wrong, although that could be the case. But it does mean that you have differing perspectives on the same thing. And sometimes what one group comes up with is this is the way to fix this. The other group says, well, your heart's in the right place, but you don't realize you're making a new, a new problem that's even worse than the original problem. And so they might disagree with the politics of how you're going to address poverty, for example. Well, the church has got to show the world how to disagree well. And, you know, much has been made of, of like the lost generations of younger Christians. And, and most, of the, most of the research says that they've grown disillusioned 
with the divisiveness and hypocrisy that's present in most institutions. It's not just the church that's yeah. facing it. They've lost, they've lost faith in institutions, period. And the church is just one of those institutions. And so I, I, would, I would say that embracing the politics of heaven that, that's illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount, rather than just fighting culture wars or focusing on, on, on quote, winning, that might be the thing that actually helps to draw them back is to say, you know what? We don't agree on everything, but we can disagree well. We can main, remain not just cordial, not just polite, but realize, look, we're both trying to accomplish the same thing. So we disagree on how to do it. We've got to leave the door open for compromise. That's what disagreeing well means, that you've got to leave the door. Sometimes you've got to give a little. And you know what? In giving a little, it may demonstrate to the pers- the other person or the other side okay, that didn't work. You know, we tried it and it didn't work. Maybe this person knows more than I think they do. Maybe I need to give more weight to their opinion as we approach other problems. And um, so, you know, I, I, th- I think that's going to be one of the big keys is that we, we've got to really embrace the things that Jesus said, not just as they're, they're great quotes, they're true. Jesus, Ephesians 2 said, that he united the Jews and the Gentiles. He, he, he dismantled the wall that separated them and, and made out of the two one. And then he reconciled, of course, those groups to God too. So Jesus's literal life was all about a ministry of reconciliation, about taking enemies and transforming them, not just to non-combatants, but actually making them become family. You know, the Jews and the Gentiles became part of one spiritual, multi-ethnic, multinational, multicultural body known as the church. We've got to follow that blueprint. Yeah. Yeah. Amen, brother. Amen. I, I appreciate so much everything you said, Brandon. I, I, I can't help but think that when you said that Jesus' way works, it dawned on me that all of the groups that you mentioned— uh, the, Rome itself, Caesar is dead and Rome is gone. Rome is no more. And and if you had said that in the first century, that Rome will not exist anymore, they couldn't even imagine that. They couldn't imagine Rome being gone, like no, no more Rome. Rome is gone. There are no more zealots. You know, Jerusalem was destroyed. All of these political movements and parties that existed in the time of Jesus are gone. Yet here we are continuing to to proclaim his name and to hopefully live out his way. So you're right. It works. The kingdom of heaven is is here to stay. So thank you, brother. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your example, your wisdom, and your work in, in God's kingdom. Thank you. It's my, my pleasure to get to have this conversation and uh, just hope it contributes to uh, some food for thought and uh, making, the, uh, making the world a better place through the gospel. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Pauly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.